4, Philippians chapter 4, and to read verses 10 through 20. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 20, please. Upon finding that, uh, please pray with me. Father in heaven, we now come to this which is your word, and we pray that you would work it in us. I pray that you would overcome any resistance that we would have. Father, we confess to you that sin lurks within us to keep us from hearing you, from, from, from setting our affections upon you. And thus I pray, through the power of Christ, as you have on the cross, that you would overcome all of our resistance, that you would overcome even our natural weakness to sit and to listen and all of that. Father, you would take care of all that so that your word would attract us, would captivate us. And Father, that we would not only comprehend it, but it would apprehend us, that we might live it in a way that is glorifying to you and thus fulfill all that you've called us to in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians in chapter 4, verse 10. I received, I'm sorry, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly now that at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Uh, Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I will, if God will help us, try to um, understand primarily today verse 19, uh, which says, And my God will supply every need of yours yours according to his riches and glory uh, in Christ Jesus. To get there, we need to do a couple of things. One, of course, we need to review. Because I mentioned last week that there are really in these ten verses uh, two, at least, topics to consider, two themes, two topics to consider. Uh, One we dealt with beginning with verse 11, 11 through 13, where Paul writes, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever circumstance, whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in every and any circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who uh, strengthens me. Now, we looked at that last week and said first that's a profound statement. It's profound, most especially coming from the lips of a man who had lived in a variety of circumstances, most of which you and I could never even imagine. In the context of being hungry, in the context of being shipwrecked, of being persecuted, of being imprisoned, of being stoned, of being left for dead, all of those kinds of things you and I can't even imagine. And yet Paul says in the midst of those, I learned something, I learned to be content. Uh, Even in the situation in which he's in, he's in prison for goodness sakes. And he writes this. You get the sense that he's perfectly content when he writes this. Else he wouldn't have. And thus, there he is, 
writing about contentment in the midst of a situation of great deprivation, deprivation of freedom, of food, of friends, and thus there he is. Yet he writes, he's learned something, he's learned to be content. And we know what that means. We know that he's learned in every circumstance and situation that he can be at rest, he can be at peace, that he needn't grumble and complain, that he doesn't need to be impatient, that he doesn't need to be jealous of people who are in better circumstances, that he doesn't need to envy those who have life better than he does at the moment. He doesn't need to covet what they have, saying that I deserve that, not them. But rather, he says, I can be content. I've learned that in all situations. And he learned it by realizing over time, as he looked back upon his life, that in every circumstance, in every situation, Christ strengthened him, and that was all he needed. And thus, for the college students beginning this year, you realize that God will teach you through the course of this year contentment. He will teach you, if you're a believer in Christ, he will teach you that Christ satisfies and will be your strength. So don't fret as you enter into this year. Don't worry as you enter into this year because Christ, if you believe in him, will strengthen you. Thus you can enter into this year with joy. We just sang, great is thy faithfulness. Well, in my little dyslexic mind, uh, I often think faith is our gratefulness. And so we begin, you see, in faith, giving thanks because we know that God will be faithful to give us strength through Christ. As business people enter into uh, this month, this year, do it with faith. God will strengthen you regardless of the situation. And this comes from one who's been appointed by God to live a life and then to tell us about it infallibly, without error, only the truth, and the truth that comes through him, through his life, by way of him, is that Christ will strengthen every situation so you can be content. And I said, I ended last week by saying, that's the romance of the gospel, that is. That's the romance of the Christian life. Because romance, we know, there's an attraction when we're romantically involved. There's an attraction and there's a wonder. We're drawn to it and yet we wonder, how is it that this is all going to work out? And though we begin with Christ and he says, trust me, in the midst of all these situations, don't worry, don't fret. You can be content. I'll strengthen you. And we're attracted to that because we know our own weakness. But we don't know quite till we get there. In fact, sometimes till it's over what that really means. How he really strengthened us. How he really kept us. But he says, trust me, walk with me. That's the romance of the gospel. Well, today the romance continues. Because we come down to this verse where the apostle writes, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And we wonder, what really does that mean? Because it seems, if I ask you to make a list of all the needs that you have that are unmet right now, I think we could come up with a sizable list. Whether it's valid needs or not, we could come up with a list. But I think we could find people that we would look at and say, they have, they're Christians, but they have valid needs at this point in time. Whether they're in the midst of persecution or ill health or poverty, whatever happens to be their situation, we could say they're valid needs. Thus, how can the apostles say so forthrightly, so confidently, that God will supply 
every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And you see, even makes it even more attractive to us, more astounding to us, when he attaches that little phrase, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Because that doesn't, that doesn't simply mean that he's going to meet our needs by way of Christ. It certainly means that he must. There's no other way to meet our needs other than through Christ. But he says, in relationship to the wealth of Christ, I will meet your needs. For instance, let's say that I threw a party according to my wealth. You'd have a certain measure of expectations. A lot of little tuna fish sandwiches, a lot of brownies. But let's say, yeah, let's say that you got an invitation to a party by, from Bill Gates. And it, it said, P.S., he's throwing this party in relationship to, accordance to his wealth, you'd expect steak, lobster, all, you know, stuff like that. And so this is saying God's going to meet our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus that is in comparison with the riches of Christ that are glorious. And so we, understand, we ask the question, what then does this mean for us? I often use the expression because it's helpful to me. I picked it up from, you know, the old dead guy, John Bunyan, who once remarked about a phrase in Scripture. He says, I'm going to live off God's Word. I want to live off of His Word. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Therefore, how then do we live off of it? How does this feed our souls? All right, now to get there, We need to think about this church in Philippi and think about a few things that Paul says about them. Notice verse 17. He says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now remember the context here where Paul's attempting to give them thanks for the gift that they've sent. Now we mentioned last week the difficulty has doing that. Because in one regard, he was content in Christ before they sent it. Certainly, what they sent helped him, improved his circumstance. But that really wasn't what he was thankful for primarily. What he was thankful for primarily was that they had sent it. Now, why? Why was he thankful that they had done it? What was the story there? Well, he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, here we find Paul mixing metaphors. Fruit is an agricultural metaphor. Uh, Increasing to your credit or your account is a business metaphor. Now, if Paul had been writing this for his Greek teacher, he wouldn't have been allowed to do that. But that's the wonder, isn't it, about being out of school? You just get to write whatever you want, however you want to say it. It's great. Graduation day is a wonderful thing. Now that I'm out of seminary, I preach the way way I want to. It's great. You know, I just left it all behind. Um, Plus, my preaching professor's dead. (laughs) So, though I really do think he'll be the second person I meet in heaven. And I don't think heaven can be unpleasant, but it might be for a moment at that point in time. I don't know. 
I don't know. But Paul's mixing metaphors here, so let's unmix them just to try to get at this. Because if we were going to unmix them and go with the with the farm or the agricultural metaphor, we'd, he would we would put it like this. He would say, um, "I'm well supplied." Um, I'm sorry. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that is increasing in your orchard or increasing on your tree. Right? That would be consistent. Or if we're going to stick with a business metaphor, he would say something to the effect, I seek the interest that is increasing in your account. Now when we look at it like that, what does it mean? Well, if you're a farmer and fruit is growing, that's good. That's an indicator for you that you're doing the right things. That you're really growing in your understanding of farming. And you're a pretty darn good farmer because fruit's coming up. And if, if you're a businessman and you look into your account and your investments are growing, you're thinking, I must be doing the right things. I must be doing the things that are consistent with being a businessman. And so Paul says, this is what really thrills me. What I'm seeing is fruit increasing in your account, fruit increasing in your life, meaning you're getting it. You're understanding this. Because here I am, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And here I am, an apostle of Jesus Christ in prison. And here you are, a church. And you look at my situation and you send a gift to help me. Yes! That's the way it's supposed to work. That tells me you're understanding what it means to be a believer in Christ. Because you see, that's really all Paul cares about. He said that for him to die is gain but for him to live is Christ you remember that little debate he had in chapter 2 should he, or chapter 1 should he live should he die which would be better he said well if I die that's gain but if I if I live then I'll live on for your joy and progress in the gospel and he's seeing their progress he's saying yes you understand what it means to be a follower of Christ and I see that by your generosity by your gift by the kindness by the compassion that you've shown to me here notice for instance uh, even in chapter 1 in verse 9 uh, this prayer that he prayed for them uh, I challenged you I've challenged myself to pray it for our congregation and for ourselves I trust many of you are still doing that but notice what it says, he said, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit. See, he's been praying about fruit, and now he's seeing some fruit. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now remember when we were there some months ago, thinking about what Paul was praying for, that this fruit of righteousness would be theirs that comes through Christ. We asked the question, what is that fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ? We know to the believer and to anyone, the only way righteousness comes is through Jesus. There's no other way. Because you see, we, you and I, are not inherently, naturally, apart from Christ, righteous or right with God. God is righteous. He is right. Everything about him is right. We are not. For us to be accepted by him, we must be right. We must be right in his sight. 
He must receive us as righteous, as right. But yet if we're not right, we're sunk. The good news is, the gospel is that Christ comes and really in essence provides one thing, yet two parts. He comes and he takes our sin upon himself and dies our death, our penalty, that those who believe in him would be forgiven their sins. And then you see, he grants to us, gives to us, his rightness, his righteousness. So we're clothed in his righteousness so that we're forgiven and accepted. And so this righteousness that comes through Christ, first of all, saves us, enables us to be accepted by God. But then he says there's this fruit of righteousness. So what's the fruit that comes from being clothed with the righteousness of Christ, being given the righteousness of Christ. The fruit of that righteousness is what we could say, Christ-likeness. The big word for that is sanctification. That we increasingly grow to be more like Jesus. And so you see, when they send this gift to Paul, he's saying, I'm seeing the very fruit I've been praying for. I'm seeing you behave as Christ himself would behave. I'm seeing in you the compassion of Christ. I'm seeing in you the mercy of Christ. I'm seeing in you the very love of Christ. And so you see, he says, yes, that's what thrills my soul. Parents, you know that on Christmas morning when you get a present from your six-year-old, that it's nice, but it's usually not the highest quality gift you could ever get in your life. But what you're thankful for, if it's given sincerely, is that your kid actually thought about you and you go, yes, that's what I've been training them to do, to be kind and to give gifts. And then when that marvelous day comes, if it ever does, my mother says it never came for me, my wife confirms that, but we had noticed in our own children occasionally that they're walking through the kitchen and they look at the garbage and it's full and they take it out. And that's nice, you're happy they took the garbage out, but you're saying, they're growing up. Wow, that's wonderful. And Paul's saying, yes, it's not so much the gift, but I see them growing. And that's what I really want to see. You see, in the context of the life of the church, that's what thrills, I'll just be honest, what thrills my heart is not the fact that our sanctionasium is full. Just because there's a lot of people here, so I can brag to all my friends, we had so many people there. What thrills my soul is that as people come, I see them getting it. I see them understanding. I see them growing. I see them walking. I'm growing too. And you see, that's what thrills our souls. When, when people give more money, it's not about, as I've told you a zillion times, getting more money. There's ways to get money. What's exciting about that is the fact that it shows that people are trusting Christ increasingly and thus becoming increasingly generous. That's why we don't give any plaques for people to give. We don't give any praise for people to give. I'm into peas right now. See what else? We don't pass any plates. Uh, we, uh, because the issue isn't getting money. The issue is testing the heart. We want to see, are people committed to Christ? Are they growing? And that's an indicator 
that that's the case. As people get involved in serving Christ by teaching Sunday school, by being involved in various ministries, by helping others in the context of the body, by being involved in in mercy ministries and missions and other kinds of things like that, the point isn't so we can write this up and publish it. The point is that people are growing. We're seeing the fruit of righteousness. We're seeing the fruit that's increasing to our account. Not that we're gaining anything by it. Not like we're storing anything up. But it's showing, yes, something right's happening here. People are being awakened. People are following Christ. And that, you see, is a good thing. That's what thrills That's what thrills the heart. When more people go to Sunday school, when, when, when more people come on our Wednesday night suppers and all that kind of stuff. And this isn't an advertisement. You, mo- you know me better than that. If I'm going to advertise, I can guilt you in different kind of ways. But what is exciting to us is the fact that, yes, people are seeing their need for the Word. People are seeing that they need to pray together. People are seeing they need to Bible study together. They need to fellowship together because that's the way we grow in Christ. And that's what's really exciting, you see. And notice how Paul puts it. I read it during the offering time. He puts it like this. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit uh, that increases your account. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. As he, Paul says, you're giving to me, giving to him, you're giving to him is worship. Worship of God, not worship of Paul, worship of God. And we say, Paul, isn't that a little presumptuous? Is that just because somebody gave you a gift that they're actually worshiping God through that? And of course the answer to that is no, it's not presumptuous at all. It's true. For instance, Proverbs chapter 19 and uh, verse 17 says something rather interesting, as the Proverbs do, to kind of catch our attention. Proverbs 19:17 says, uh, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. It's not that God needs to borrow. He's a little short this month. But the idiom, the expression, simply means that when we give to the poor, and in this context, as in most of the context here, it's in this context of the covenant community, when we give to the poor, it's as if we're blessing the Lord. You remember that in Acts chapter 9, when Paul reports of Paul being arrested, literally, by Jesus on the road to Damascus, that Jesus says to him, Lord, Lord, uh, it says, it says uh, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And if I were Paul, I would say, I haven't touched you. But of course, Paul had touched Christ. Because when one touches one who belongs to Christ, you touch Christ. When one gives to one who belongs to Christ, you give to Christ. You remember Matthew chapter 25, a great judgment scene. Uh, where Jesus uh, comes and the nations of the world come before him and the scripture says that he separates the sheep from the goats as the shepherd does. Do you remember what he does? The scripture says this to the sheep, come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And he's saying, listen, when you help my brothers, that is believers, other Christians, if you help those in need, you're doing it 
unto me. That's the identity, the union that we have with Christ. And you see, that marks one out as a believer. The love that we have for each other. Jesus put it like this, a new commandment I give to you. Love each other as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples because you love each other. The thing that marks out a Christian is whether we love each other or not. The Apostle John in 1 John, if I could paraphrase, simply puts it like this. If you see your brother in need and don't help him, you're not a Christian. And so the Apostle says, when you give to me, when I'm in need, it's worship of God. He's pleased. And what I see in that is this fruit being credited to your account, increasing in your account. Why? Because it's showing you're getting it, you're understanding, your heart is true. In fact, it goes on even more explicitly. And this is amazing. Turn to 2 Corinthians in chapter 8. Because Paul writes to the church in Corinth here and rather brags on the churches in Macedonia of which uh, Philippi is one. 2 Corinthians in chapter 8 and verse 1. Paul writing to the church in Corinth says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, take a look at that equation for a minute. Three things are going to add up to one thing. Notice the three things that he combines together. He says this. He says, first, you take a severe test of affliction. Okay, don't romanticize that. Think of a severe affliction upon a group of people, persecution imprisonment, famine, whatever you... Severe test of affliction. The abundance of joy. And then throw in extreme poverty. That affliction plus joy plus poverty equals great generosity. It's rather amazing, isn't it? But that's the group of people doing Paul is writing. He says, This is overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will. Paul said, You know, we didn't even have to ask them. In fact, he goes on in verse 4. He says, Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, why would they have to beg Paul to take their stuff, to take their gift? Well, because, you know, when a person comes to you with no shoes on, handing you a pair of shoes and says, says, give this to somebody without any shoes, you want to say, well, why don't you just keep it? You see. But in their extreme poverty and affliction, they came to Paul looking like they needed more than they were giving. And so Paul said, why don't you just keep it? And they said, oh, no, please. It would make us so disappointed not to be able to give this. And so he took it. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And that's why it was a sweet smelling savor to the Lord when this church gave. Because it was first to bless the Lord. It was first because they were believers. It was first because God had moved in their heart. It was first because this transformation had taken place 
First, because the fruit of righteousness was there, that, that had come because their love had abounded more and more, both for God and for Paul, in all knowledge and discernment, so that they could approve that which was excellent. They began to think what's really important here, what's really right here. We have these brothers and sisters who are in, in great distress. Therefore, let's take from what we have, can't take from what you don't have, let's take from what we have and let's give it to them. First they gave themselves to the Lord and then to the others. That's who these people were. Now, if you understand that, then I think it makes a great deal of sense why Paul, contextually, could look them in the eye and say, I'm not worried about you people. God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You see, Paul didn't make this statement in isolation. He didn't make this in a vacuum. He made this to a particular group of people with particular characteristics. Because you said he saw in them, I trust, exactly what Jesus was speaking about on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and chapter 6. You remember Matthew chapter 6 verse 25. Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body not more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by means, by being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? You get the impression that this, this church in Philippi wasn't running around, even in the midst of their affliction, and even in the midst of their poverty, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we wear? Interestingly, it seems like they were saying, Those poor Christians in Jerusalem, or Paul in prison, what's he going to eat? Or what's he going to wear? It's as if their attention was turned, you see. So much away from their... I bet there wasn't a mirror in Philippi. For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. And this is then the characteristic of the church in Philippi. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now that isn't to say that food is unimportant. It's not, especially to a hungry person. That isn't to say that clothing is unimportant, for it is important, especially to a naked person. And that isn't to say that shelter isn't important. It is to a person who's out in the elements. But you see, if we focus our attention on such as that, and that's our primary attention, then when we die, that's all we'll have. What does it profit a man to gain all the clothes in the world, to gain all the houses in the world, to gain all the food in the world, in fact, to gain the whole world, if in process he loses his own soul. So Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, that is, submit yourself to the very rule of God and all that he brings to us in Christ Jesus. 
and his rightness, his righteousness, that we might display the fruit of his righteousness. And then he says, an amazing promise, then all these other things will be added unto you. You see, you, you can't understand what all these things will be added unto you means. You can't understand my God will supply every need of you according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Unless you're a person who seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Unless you're a person whose love is abounding more and more in all knowledge and discernment so that you can approve that which is really excellent. And so be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. You just can't understand it. Um, where is it? You remember when the Lord Jesus, when he was speaking one day to a group of people, he said that no one has given up houses, parents, anything that they would not receive in this life and the life to come, in this age, a hundredfold. It's an amazing statement. But you see, no one can understand that unless in Christ you've given those things up. Because it's only in the giving of them up for the sake of the gospel that you really understand what Jesus is saying. So then, how do we live on this verse? Well, first, we live with an assurance. If you're a believer in Christ, and if you're one who is seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you should be living, we should be living with a sense of confidence that God will supply all our needs. Now there's a sense in which he'll supply all of our spiritual needs, all the forgiveness we need, all the contentment we need, all the peace we need, all the spiritual strength we need. But you know, as we're entering to various situations and we feel weak or we feel condemned or we wonder are we really going to be able to persevere through the midst of this thing, we should enter into that situation with a sense that yes, as I depend upon God, He will supply me everything I need for that moment, everything I need for that particular situation. But I don't think it only applies to our spiritual lives. I think there's a sense in which it also applies materially, physically as well. Because Paul was given a real gift to deal with a real need in the context of his life. And now he's saying that God will supply you just as amply. And so what does that mean? How do we deal with that? How do we face the various needs in our lives? Well, I think... And, and I'm not old enough to preach definitively on this yet. When I'm... How long am I going to do this? When I'm 80. I'll still be in Philippians. Um, <laughs> maybe I'll, I'll be more definitive. But I think like this. This is how I do. This is how I live on this verse. I lay myself before the Lord and I say, I desire the kingdom of God, your rule in my life and all that that brings, and your righteousness. Here, Father, is a need I believe that I have. 
And then as I lay that out before God, I must also go to the scripture and make sure that it's a legitimate thing. It isn't immoral, it isn't unethical, but it's a real need that I have. And I ask him to supply that need. And then I go in the normal course of life, and if it's a job I'm asking for, then I make application. If it's health I'm asking for, then I go to the doctors. If it's, if it's, uh, if it's an education I want, I go to class. Yes, he just won't drop a diploma on you in four years, or eight. Um, I go to class with the confidence that God will supply that need. But then you ask the question, what if he doesn't? What if that need isn't supplied at any one moment in time? You know, needs are funny, aren't they? I remember when we were in seminary, when I was in seminary, we, we decided to do seminary a way that I don't usually advise, I never advise people to do, but we just went, I just went and we prayed and God, and money came in. It was the most productive mailbox I've ever had. I wish I would have taken it with me, but it would fill up uh, over the course of the years, and so we never had to work, and, and God supplied all of those needs in that particular way. But it was interesting, because often people would come to me and ask me if I needed anything, most especially, do you need any money? And our answer always turned out to be no. Because we decided that if at any moment in time the rent was paid, and, and not late, uh, there was food that we could eat for the next meal, and none of us was running around naked, that we didn't need anything because we didn't know what was in the mail. And for all I knew, there was money coming in the mail. And it always did. So needs are interesting. But let's say there's this particular need you have and it's not supplied at that moment in time. What do you do? I think this. I think you conclude that at that moment in time, you don't need it. Because if you did, God would supply it. And thus, don't grumble and complain. Don't be jealous. Don't be envious. Don't be covetous. Don't be impatient. Now, does that mean you give up on it at all, never pray about it, never seek it? No, because tomorrow he may supply it. You might need it tomorrow. But today, Jesus said, deal with today. It has enough trouble of its own. Daily bread, supply. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He thought he needed it to be gone. And so he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And God said, no, I'm not going to take it away. You don't need that. But I'll give you what you need, which is this grace that will be sufficient to help you. Now you know why I don't have my own TV show. <laughs> this doesn't sell on TV. But we live, you see, with this great expectation that God will supply every need of ours for being and doing everything he calls us to. I assume if I need breath, he'll give it. If I need strength, he'll give it. If I need a job, he'll give it. If I need money, he'll, it'll come. If I need children, he'll give them. If I need a spouse, it will come. You see? And if not, then it meant today I didn't need it. Because you see, the calling upon our lives is to glorify God. And he will supply everything we need 
the right moment, the right time, through the right means, that we'll be able to fulfill that calling. Because he goes on, his last sentence here in this paragraph is, To our God and Father be glory, forever and ever. Amen. And that's next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment so that we as a people are able to approve that which is excellent being found pure and blameless at the day of Christ having been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through him Father, I pray that increasingly fruit would increase to our account, meaning that we would show forth Christ in our lives, that he being formed in us, that his fruit would be displayed through us, that we would be forgiving, that we would be joyful, that we would be grateful, that we would be content, that we would be filled with peace, that we would be people who are kind and gentle and merciful and compassionate. And Father, that that would go forth from us and that it would be a great encouragement to us all because it would show that, yes, this gospel is true and it is at work within us. And thus, Father, that we would be a people whose every need you would supply so that we would never once be deficient in any good work and we would never once be deficient in glorifying you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. I remind parents of youth meeting tonight, 7 o'clock, women of the church tomorrow at 7 o'clock, college students tomorrow night, Woodruff Auditorium, 9 o'clock. Take note of all those. The response to the benediction is a simple one, just this, God will supply my needs. Now when you say that, you're saying, thus I'm going to be a person who seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that I might live in the confidence that God will supply my needs. And the response then is hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him, who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine, through his power that is at work within us, to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, God will supply my needs. Hallelujah.